Obadiah verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. And a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. So the nations are rising up against Edom. Verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly destroyed, despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Let's stop there. We'll continue reading later. I need to pray. It's harsh, harsh words from God. Let me, let me pray for us uh, before we jump into this. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us clarity, that you would be with us by your spirit, that you would help us to see and to understand, that you would be with me as I speak, that my thoughts would express your thoughts and nothing else. Um, and that anything I say that is apart from you would be struck down from our minds. And Lord, I pray for all of us, wherever we are coming from, whether we come from a place of great faith and hope and trust in you, or whether we come from a place of great skepticism, doubting every word, thinking that I'm talking to ceiling tiles right now instead of a living God, or whether we're somewhere in the middle just questioning and searching and trying to figure out life. Wherever we are across the spectrum, Lord, we pray that you would be gracious to us and be with us tonight. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to be honest. I don't like this. I don't like what I just read. Like striking people down, judgment coming, people being cut off, the game being over. Um, It's a judgment passage. I mean, there's no way to read. Like, we'll, we'll get to it later, but the entire book of Obadiah is basically this massive condemnation of a whole people group called Edom. And it makes me uncomfortable, and I feel weird about it. Because I'm a Western American in 2015. It makes me uncomfortable, and I bet it makes you uncomfortable too, wherever you're coming from. Um, If you're here tonight and you're a skeptic because you were told, RUF is a safe place for skeptics. Hey, we're going to read a long passage from the Old Testament about how everybody's going to hell. You know, you're like, what? And bait and switch. Um, I get your skepticism. I get your questions. I understand them, and I feel them too. Um, but what I want us to do tonight is basically walk through this little, this little book, the shortest book in the Old Testament, this little book of judgment, and look at what it has to teach us about God, about His holiness, about His justice, um, and about what He's doing, and see if we can't make sense of this thing that we don't like about Him that He's telling us from cover to cover in His Bible. Um, there's several things we see in this passage. We'll read the rest of it in a minute. About God's judgment. 
on us, on the world, on what the Bible calls sin or rebellion. Okay? The first thing we see about God's judgment that makes us all uncomfortable is that it's real. Like, it's, it's really hard to read those first nine verses another way. Um, Obadiah is clearly not kidding. Uh, it's very popular right now and has been for the last 50 to 100 years in scholarship to try to say, you know, God's not really going to judge anybody. He's just, he's really happy with everybody. I'm okay. You're okay, as they call it. Um, but in order to do that, you have to come up with incredibly creative interpretations of huge portions of the Bible. And you just got to acknowledge that. And that may be your inter- interpretation. But you just need to acknowledge, I'm kind of doing a leapfrog over lots and lots of things. I won't read the first nine verses again, but you just heard them. It's kind of hard to interpret those in another way. Or we could say, oh, well, that was Ben. Come on, that's Obadiah. It's the Old Testament. The Old Testament God was mean and angry and childish and threw temper tantrums and got mad at people. But then Jesus came and everything became gracious and loving and kind. And we just look at his teachings, right? Ever heard that? Old Testament got bad. Good New Testament got good. Huge problems with that. First of all, like if you know Christian theology at all, like God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like where do you think Jesus was that whole time for the Old Testament? He was with the Father, if you know Christian theology. But also what's interesting is the Old Testament talks about God's judgment a lot. But the really explicit teaching about what we call hell actually comes from Jesus. Like there's a little bit from the other New Testament authors especially John in the book of Revelation, which, by the way, of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John's like the touchy-feely one. He's like, Jesus was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's like, a, he's like the hippie of the four. But he also wrote the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, which is the very end of the Bible, is the one that's talking about lakes of fire and people being thrown into it and, like, intense teaching. Um, it's not this Old Testament, New Testament thing. And people who say that haven't read the New Testament. At least not closely. C.S. Lewis, you ever heard of him? We're doing some studies on him from like his Narnia books and stuff like that. Uh, in 1939, so World War II is like taking place. He's in England. And he was invited to speak to a group of Oxford students about what's the point in getting a, a liberal arts education in the middle of World War II. Like... Everything is on fire. What's the point in studying, studying literature? And he, he's giving a speech, and he's, he's mentioned, he says, you know, it might sort of feel like Nero fiddling while Rome burns, like what you're doing now. And then he says this, let me read it to you. I spoke just now of fiddling while Rome burns, but to a Christian, the true tragedy of Nero must not be that he fiddled while the city was on fire, but that he fiddled on the brink of hell. You must forgive me for the crude monosyllable, hell. I know many wiser and better Christians than I in these days, and this was 1939, by the way, in these days do not like to mention heaven and hell even in a pulpit at church. I know, too, that nearly all the references on this subject in the New Testament come from a single source. But then that source is our Lord Jesus himself. 
People will tell you it is St. Paul, but that is not true. These overwhelming doctrines are dominical. They are not really removable from the teaching of Christ or of his church. If we do not believe them, our presence in a church is great tomfoolery. That is a 1939 word. It's tomfoolery. If we do believe them, we must sometime overcome our spiritual prudery and mention them. So tonight I am setting aside tomfoolery and overcoming my own spiritual prudery and fear of mentioning this to you. And I am talking about the judgment of God. Because we're studying minor prophets and there's not another way to talk about Obadiah. Because he's talking about judgment. Now you may immediately think, okay, yeah, Jesus taught that. And there's this idea I've heard about how Christians believe in this thing called hell. That's been the history of the church. I can see it in the Bible. But I can't believe in a God who judges. I just can't believe in a God who judges. Um, I understand that. I understand your, the, the, the feeling, the initial distaste for that that you have. But I would simply ask you, if that's your objection to rejecting God and Christianity and the Bible and Jesus, why not? Why can't you believe in a God who judges? Think about the other things in your life that you don't like. Do they cease to exist because you don't like them? I don't like cancer. I don't like war. I don't like Randy. Okay. I love Randy. And he exists. But if I cease to like him, he would not cease to exist. Just because you don't like a thing doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There's this interesting thing that's happened is that we in our culture today, being individualists, we think we are in the judgment seat of God. If I don't like a thing about him, then I don't have to believe in him. But what if the situation is reversed? What if that's the wrong question? What if the question is not, do you like God, but does God like you? That's offensive. Let's keep going. Think about it. It's not a good standard for believing or not believing a thing, whether you like it or not. I don't like spiders. I've got one on my front porch. Her name is Carlita. Um, she's yellow and black and has a huge egg sack. Um, there's an old movie and there was a remake um, starring, uh, what's her name? Um, she was married to Tom Cruise. No, before her. Nicole Kidman. Called uh, Stepford Wives. Called The Stepford Wives. It was like a 1950s movie. And it was basically about this man who goes and he gets a job in this community. This is really sweet job. But when he gets there, he notices that all the wives of the other men in the company. It's an older movie, so all the men in the company are men. And <laughs> their wives are just like really pleasant and nice and bring you cookies and cookie meals and clean up after you. And be like, you get home from work and they're like, here's your scotch, honey. You know, like old school. Mad men. But at first it's great. He loves it. And then he realizes that all the women are brainwashed. And maybe even robots. And basically all the wives, the Stepford wives, say to their husbands this, Yes, dear. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. Whatever every husband wants. The wife says, Yes, dear. And the whole point of the movie is, at first he thinks this is great. And then he realizes he's lost his wife. Because she can never tell him no. You don't want a Stepford wife or a Stepford husband. But a lot of us think that we want a Stepford God. 
Yes, dear. Yes, American culture. Whatever you think in the last five years is what I think. Really? Do you really want a God that can't tell you no? They can't tell you, you know what, what you think is wrong, and I'm right and you're wrong. They can't resist you. They can't speak back to you. According to the Bible, and I I get the objections. We can get coffee. We can talk about it more. But according to the Bible, God's judgment is real. Cover to cover, it's there. Not liking something doesn't make it go away or make it untrue. But I would actually argue that deep down at the core of your being, you actually want God to judge. You say, I don't, want to, I don't want a judging God. I would, I would argue with you that yes, you do. Well, let's keep reading. Let's consider that later, but let's keep going. Verse 10. Verse 10. God says this to Edom. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. Remember, Edom is the descendants of Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. Jacob, the patriarch of God's people, Israel and Judah. Okay. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. You shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Next point. God's judgment in this passage is real. But number two, it's relational. Do you hear the passion of God in these passages? Don't stand and gloat over your brother. Over my people. This isn't just sort of a detached, I'm the creator, I've made sort of my Lego universe, and this Lego piece is out of the place where I wanted him to be, and so I'm mad. No, there's a relational component. God is saying, I created the world for a purpose, and you're violating that. I set apart these people, and now you're wounding them. This is my son, and you're harming him. This is family. This is personal. Did you guys see the movie Braveheart? It's a little old now. It's like 25 years old. Seen it? Raise your hand. No? Okay. So there's this guy, William Wallace. He's this Scottish dude. Played by Mel Gibson before Mel Gibson went crazy. And um, he, uh, you know, he's living in Scotland. And England has, you know, kind of got Scotland under their thumb. And there's these local lords who rule over different villages and so they, they declare this thing called prima nocta, which means if a bride is going to be married, the Lord gets to sleep with her the night before her wedding. And so Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, marries in secret, and he's got a little wife on the side. The priest has come out, you know, in the, in the woods, just the two of them. Got this sweet little wedding. But then one of the soldiers, one of the lords from the overlords, comes and tries to rape her. And she fights back and resists. And because she resists being raped, she's dragged into the center of the village. Wallace has tried to get away. He thinks she's fleeing away. And while he is away at a rendezvous point that she never makes it to, the overlord comes and slits her throat in front of the village after a mock trial. And Wallace comes back. 
He realizes what has happened. And what do you think he does? He rallies together the forces. And they storm the fort. And they start kicking butt and taking names. Right? And then finally he gets the Lord who killed his wife. And he grabs him by the scruff of the neck. And as he grabs him, he drags him out of the fort. And they're on a giant hill. And he shoves him down the hill. And he kicks him down the hill. And the man is rolling down the hill. And then he shoves him up against the post. Where that man cut his wife's throat. And let me ask you, if you raise your hand and and you watch that movie. What were you feeling when you watched that? Or even as I tell the story, what are you thinking? No, Mr. Braveheart, don't hurt the nice man. No, none of you felt that. None of you thought that. You thought, get him. Yes, like that guy's getting kicked. That guy's falling down the hill. That guy's going down. And I would argue with you that you don't feel that because you're like a really nasty person. But that you are in the image of God and you just intrinsically know justice must be served. And it's not just about breaking rules and things being set right. That's part of it, but it's more than that. It's relational. And the idea in the Bible is that God's people are his bride. That's what we're called. And and God's world is his creation. We are his offspring. And when he sees that being violated, he's not just sitting up in the courthouse banging a gavel and making a decision. He cares. It's relational. It's real. It's personal. Which ties into our next point, verse 15. Verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. It's real. It's relational. God's judgment. And third, God's judgment is retributive. Retributive. Uh, And this gets at that justice thing. It's not just relational. There is like a real accounting for what's going on. Your deeds will return upon your own head. As you have done, it shall be done to you. It says in verse 15. This whole idea of retribution has two parts. One, it's just basic justice. In other words, God's judgment actually is fair. Like if we had all the evidence... And saw things from God's perspective. We would at the end of the day agree with his judgment. Like we want to say oh you're condemning me? What? Like I'm not perfect but I'm pretty great. Like I'm a pretty good guy. But God says no I I see all things. And you've earned this. You can't say it's unfair. But it's actually deserved. The second part of this of the retribution Your deeds shall be returned upon your own head. Your deeds, things you do, returning on your own head is the picture. That in a sense, God's judgment is your undoing and my undoing. Um, Part of God's punishment, we see it real clearly in Romans 1 where he says, The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and talks about how God gave man over to his own desires. It's a really fascinating thing that... God's judgment is revealed by letting us do the things we want and have what we want. But those have horrific consequences. Letting your deeds come to fruition. In a sense, God's judgment is us eating a piece of fruit 
from a tree that we planted through our actions and deeds and heart motives. According to the Bible. Let's get coffee. I get it's hard. Let's talk about it. Uh, but an illustration of this is that I love. There's these two paintings. One of heaven and one of hell. Uh, and in the painting of hell, there's a whole bunch of people sitting around a banquet table. And they are, it's spread out. with There's food all over it. Fruits and chickens and all these like roasted things. It's like kind of picture like the medieval feast, right? And they're all sitting around the table. And every single person is gaunt and skinny. Their eyes are sunken into their heads. And they are furious and angry and miserable. Even though they're sitting in a banquet. Because their arms are absurdly long. Like these weird like pipe cleaner arms. And they can't get food into their own mouths. Because their arms are too long. The second painting is a picture of heaven. And it's the exact same table. The exact same banquet. And the people around the table look the same. Except instead of being gaunt, they look full. Instead of being miserable, they look happy. Instead of being angry, they look joyful. But they have the same ridiculous arms. But instead of trying to feed themselves, they're feeding each other. One person is dipping into the pudding and feeding it to the person across the table. That they live each for the sake of the other. They are living lives of love. Whereas in hell, people are living selfishly, only concerned about themselves. They are self-absorbed and prideful and maniacal. Verse 3 talks about the pride. You think you soar like an eagle, but you will be brought low. Tim Keller puts it like this. Hell is the trajectory of the soul going on forever. Part of God's wrath is giving us what we want. And in our pride, what we want is me. What we want is to be the center of the universe. And so long as we try to live at the center, we can never be satisfied and our lives are miserable. The coming of fruition of our self-absorption devoid of love. The pride of your heart has deceived you, it says in verse 3. Let's move on. Clock's ticking. Verse 17. But in Mount Zion, which is the mountain of God, in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor in the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those in the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. And those in Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. There's lots of weird names and words. We'll talk about in a second. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Zarephath shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. We just read a whole book of the Bible. What? I know. Um, 
Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The last point, God's judgment is real, it's relational, it's retributive, which means it's fair. And finally, it's redemptive. It's redemptive. All those like nation peoples and locations, the geography lesson we just got in the last few verses, is basically saying the rightful heirs of these places will be restored to their rightful place. Like Mordor will be pushed back and Aragorn and his people will come in and reign and the hobbits will be happy again. That's the picture that is being given here, but with biblical names and places that are real historical places. Peace on the mountain. It will be holy. The exiles will be brought back to safety. The oppressor will be put in his place. The rightful heirs in their own land. And then finally, the last verse, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. He's going to set things right. Um, Unless you are a complete pacifist and think that no one should ever raise a fist or a gun or a sword, you know that there's something about this that's right. When oppressors come in, when perpetrators, when abusers come in, when slavery exists today more than it ever has in the history of the world, where you can buy a human being for $40, you can buy a human being today for $40. I don't care if you're an atheist. I don't care what your background is. You hear that and you go, that's wrong. Somebody, I need Jack Bauer to come throw a punch and set this right. God's justice is redemptive. Things have gone horribly wrong and that's our fault, not his. And he's saying, my justice will bring it back to rights. So it's redemptive in that sense. But second, it's not just in that he's putting things back straight. We take a step back from the passage and look at the whole Bible. Listen to this from Romans. Romans chapter 5 says this. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This whole passage is about the wrath of God, the judgment of God. We will be saved from that because Christ died for us, says Romans. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, if while we We're enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Did you hear what Paul just did? He just said, we, himself and his audience, were enemies. You put that into Obadiah. Paul's saying, I'm not not Judah. I'm Edom. I'm the enemy. I'm the bad guy. But I was reconciled to God, reconnected to him by the death of his son. It's incredible. He talks about being justified. That includes wrath being poured out on Jesus. We'll talk about that in a second. But like we were enemies. That that dissolves self-righteousness and judgment on our part. 
I hinted at it, but how does that happen? The third part. It's redemptive because God's setting things right. It's redemptive because he says his own people were considered enemies. But finally, third, it's redemptive because Christ himself was treated as that enemy. Christ was treated as that enemy. Look at verse 16 again. He says, As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and it shall be as if they had never been. Throughout the Old Testament, at different portions, God's wrath is pictured as being poured out on people like a cup. And the people who receive the wrath are pictured as drinking that cup. As you have drunk on my holy mountain. It's like this, this like steaming hot wine that had like spices and stuff in it. It was sort of the, the, the visual picture. Okay, And suffering wrath was like chugging that cup down to the dregs. Got it? That's what's going on in Obadiah. You're going to drink that nasty cup. And that cup is my wrath. The night before Jesus died, he's alone in a garden and he's praying to his father and he prays this. Father, take this cup away from me. The picture is Jesus is holding this, holding this steaming hot bowl of spicy wine that is the wrath of his father. That he is supposed to drink. And he's saying take it away. But not my will but yours be done. He says father if there's any other way. Take this cup from me. The implicit answer from the father's silence. Is that no Jesus there is no other way. If the enemies are not going to drink the cup. Then somebody has to. That retribution has to be paid. This is relational. This has to take place. And so Jesus drinks the cup. Here's the deal. In Christianity, in Jesus, in the God of the Bible, you see a God who not only gives out justice and wrath, which I would argue with you, you want him to do. He doesn't just give it out to others, though. He drinks it himself. He tastes it himself. He has suffered it himself. Jesus on the cross drank that cup of wrath. He suffered the punishment of God so that his enemies, you and me, would not have to be called his enemies anymore, but could be reconciled to God. And that, to me, is breathtaking and crazy. So you can look at Jesus and you can say, I don't like hell. This is no fair. And he's standing there holding that cup, looking at you like, what? You have no idea what fair is. You have no idea what hell is. You have no idea what judgment is. I have tasted it and suffered it for you because I love you. Because you were an enemy and hostile in mind, as it says in Colossians. But I have now reconciled you to myself and to my father by drinking it for you so you don't have to. I've had the cup of wrath so that you can drink a cup of wine. As he did with his disciples, he holds up a cup and he says, this cup is me. And it's for you. And it's wine. Drink it. We were enemies, we were Edom, but he drank the cup on the cross so that we could live. God's justice is hard and uncomfortable and different and countercultural, but it actually shows us his love. I'd love to get coffee with you and talk about, about that more. Um, well, let's pray for now. Lord God, we thank you.